Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verses 4 uh, through 14, is where we're going to find ourselves this morning. And just as a, just a kind of a mental note, we will uh, read the text. I'm going to share some introductory thoughts about the text to get us right where we need to be in the life and times of the people of the book of Hebrews. And then we're going to jump into the third point, um, really addressing what the text says. So I'll be talking around the text for a little bit, and I don't want to scare you that we're never going to get to that. There's a plan and, a, and an aim to that. But if you were with us last week, we embarked on this journey on this New Testament book of Hebrews. This is a difficult book. We talked about how intimidating this book can be uh, because there's a lot of things that we in the 21st century here in America may not so readily understand or, or have uh, a good working knowledge of. And so we're going to be doing a lot of uh, kind of back study to understand exactly where these Hebrew Christians were. But what we do know for sure, without question, is that these were followers of Jesus Christ who had given their lives to Christ but found themselves wanting to give up. They were wanting to give in. Their life was filled with persecution, uh, relational issues and turmoil, and, and all of that persecution and all of that turmoil, whether at work or at play, centered around one person, and that was Jesus. Their relationship with Jesus was making life difficult. Maybe some of you find yourself there. Maybe you find yourself in, in family disarray or at work with issues, and it isn't about you or your personality. It has to do with your allegiance to Jesus. And these individuals, because of their allegiance to Jesus, found themselves wanting to give up and give in as a result. And what they were willing to give up and give in on was Jesus. They wanted to go back to the Old Testament. They wanted to go back to Judaism, and all they needed to do was move Jesus out of the picture, and they would have been fine. But the author's going to tell them over and over again, to give up Jesus is to give up everything. To give up Jesus is to give up the greatest thing God has ever given us. And so while he articulates, as we will see over and over again, that Jesus is in fact the greatest of all time, he's going to use an argument upon argument to remind us of this important truth so that we might endure, so that we might persevere and not give up on the faith that we have come to love and have come to enjoy. And so what he's going to do is he's going to talk about these arguments. And he's going to start with this subject matter of angels. And right away you're going to say, well, who would ever think that angels are better than Jesus? Well, for us, thankfully, because of the New Testament, because of the early church creeds, we know there's no doubt, there's no question that if you were to, to diminish Jesus, you would place yourself in the place of the cults. To diminish Jesus is to get rid of all that is good and right in our relationship with God. But in the days of the Hebrews, that was a growing temptation, and we need to understand by looking into their life and understanding what they were reading and what they were a part of, why these opening verses of chapter 1 are so very important. So let's read uh, from Hebrews chapter 1 in your Bibles. I'm going to start in verse 4, and then we'll go through verse 14. Having become as much superior to angels as the name Jesus inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you? Or again, that I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. 
And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, that is Jesus, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of unbrightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, this is speaking of Jesus, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are angels not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Let's pray. Father God, teach us from your word this morning, I ask. I pray that uh, the truths that we need to know from this text would be drawn out, they would be heard, and then they would be heeded. Father, I pray that in light of what we hear, that we would continue to elevate you above and beyond anything in this world or outside of this world, including angels. Give us the knowledge we need so that we might live for your glory and namesake. We love you because you are, in fact, the greatest of all time, and for that, we give you praise, and it's in Christ's name we pray, amen and amen. Well, growing up in the 80s and 90s, I was a kid that, uh, like many of you who are my peers, grew up with sitcoms. Sitcoms was your evening night of entertainment. And one of the sitcoms I remember was entitled, Who's the Boss? How many remember Who's the Boss? Yeah, it was a, a great story about a, a kind of a new kind of finagled family. Two uh, parents that weren't married, they were in this platonic relationship, and this relationship started out because a retired football player named Tony Maselli Uh, was needing a job. And the only job he could find was a live-in housekeeper who would take care of all of the domestic duties because Angela, the woman of the house, was a uh, high-powered advertising agent. To make the the show even funnier, they added uh, Angela's mother, who was a guy-crazy older lady who never uh, seemingly had her life put together. But the whole premise of this show was to break down a lot of the roles and responsibilities that were in traditional homes. The men did this, the women did this, and what happened was is they wanted to create this kind of platform that it was any man or any woman's game. Even the kids got involved, and the question was always, who's the boss? Who's calling the shots? Who's in charge. In each and every episode, there was this vying to be uh, the one who would tell everybody else what to do, the one who would be most important. Now, why do I bring that up? Because the book of Hebrews is trying to answer that question, who's the greatest? And when we answer who's the greatest, then we know who's the boss. And one of the first arguments that comes is this argument about the role of angels. The angels were powerful creatures. 
And what the people of the Hebrew day were wondering, was Jesus greater than, than them? Surely the angels are more powerful. Surely the angels have more in their resume than Jesus did. And so Jesus must just be an angel or something lesser than an angel. And so this debate began to break out as to the role that Jesus played in the Christian faith in comparison to the angels. Now, for us to understand this, we need to recognize a couple things. And so first of all, uh, right in your outlines, we need to remember an error that plagued the Christians in Hebrews. There was an error that was going. There was this idea that angels were of greater importance than Jesus. Now again, it's easy for us to sit back on the shoulders of Christians for centuries that have helped define these things for us, but in the New Testament era, it's really easy to understand how they got to this place. All they had was the Old Testament. And as they read the Old Testament, as they poured over these verses, they would see story upon story in the Old Testament where angels were doing great things for God. In fact, it could be said that in every prominent step or movement of God, angels played an important part. And so these individuals began to look at the angels and they began to see in the Old Testament how important the angels were. And it wasn't uncommon in the New Testament for angels to play the part of what Marvel characters do for us today. We want to know them. We want to understand them. And while they're fictitious, These Jewish people knew angels were for real. And they wanted to know them. They wanted to be them. They wanted to act like them. They wanted to put their hope and trust in this angelic army that God used so strategically throughout Israel's history. In fact, in the Old Testament, there are more than 100 different references or mentions of angels throughout the 39 books of the Old Testament scriptures. And in each one, the angels seemingly play center stage. To just look at the part that angels played, recognize the following. It was an angel that would take Adam and Eve out of the garden and would seal its entrance. It was, an angel, it was angels who would visit Abraham and Sarah and prophesy of the birth of Isaac. It was angels who would deliver Lot from Sodom. It was angels who would be the vision uh, that Jacob would see in his stairway to heaven. It was one angel who would bring down Pharaoh to his knees as the last plague was brought forth when that angel would strike down the firstborn in all of Egypt. It was the angels that shared their food with the children of Israel as they wandered the wilderness when they shared their manna from heaven. It was angels who would bring the law from God to Moses on Mount Sinai. It was angels who would strengthen the great prophet Elijah so that he would not die. It was one angel that would rescue Israel from an ensuing defeat by destroying 185,000 Assyrians in one night. It was an angel that appeared in a fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It was an angel that would keep Daniel alive in the lion's den. Can you just imagine for a moment, while it's easy for us to see that Jesus is the most 
important and the greatest figure of all of history, that for Israelites who were suffering persecution, while they were wishing and hoping an angel would come their way, while they were hoping that some of these great acclaims that were articulated in the Old Testament, that these first century Hebrews were hoping and wishing an angel would come their way. You see, almost every act of God or supernatural event in the history of the Israelite people had an angel a part of it. In fact, during the time of the writing of Hebrews, there was a book, a very popular book that was making its rounds. It was called The Assumption of Moses. Now, The Assumption of Moses isn't in the Bible, but the Bible quotes The Assumption of Moses. In Jude 9, the writer of Jude says of an event that happens that involves the devil, Michael the archangel, and the body of Moses. Now, the assumption of Moses gives us a little picture of what's going on. When Moses dies, now this isn't in the Bible, but when Moses dies, the devil wants to use the body of Moses for something. He wanted to maybe desecrate it because Moses was a great man of stature in the Israelites' eyes. It could be that he wanted to try to seemingly resurrect Moses and lead the people back to Egypt uh, after, as they were about to enter the promised land. We don't know. But the book of Jude says that this event takes place and it become great folklore. And what it says is that when Moses died, the devil got into a dispute with the archangel Michael over who was going to get the body. And Michael the archangel gets the body because he uh, brings up the title of the Lord, Jesus Christ. And he says, the Lord rebuke you, devil. You can't have it. All of this led, all of this speculation, all of this talk about angels led even the best of Christians to go sideways with regards to the role of angels. In fact, in Colossians 2.18, the Apostle Paul speaks to one of his most mature churches, one of the most devout churches to the Holy Scriptures. And you know what he says to a church like Village Bible in the first century? Stop worshiping angels. You see, this first century, for us, it doesn't make any sense. For them, angels were the all in all. And the writer of Hebrews wants you to know right away that the angels aren't it. They're great, but Jesus is greater. The angels are big, but Jesus is bigger. And so he begins to articulate that. Now, right away, you say, but wait a minute. They knew about Jesus, and they knew all the things that Jesus had done. Yes, they knew those in oral stories. Now, remember, the book of Hebrews is written in somewhere about 30 years after Christ is on the earth. Now, for some of you young people, that seems like a long time ago. For us older people, that's us looking back from 2020 to 1990. How many remember, with great admiration, 1990? Okay? Those were the good old days, right? Okay? No technology. Nobody could get a hold of you. You never found where you were wanting to drive to. Remember those days, right? Okay? Yeah, my, my youngest son would always say, how did you live during those days? We did, and we did just fine, all right? But 30 years had passed. What that means is, let's say this is, you are the recipients of the letter of the book of Hebrews, okay? Some of you 
were there when Jesus was doing what he was doing. For some of you, you were there. Maybe you were a part of the feeding of the 5,000. You saw some of the miracles. Maybe you were there at Golgotha when Jesus was hung on the cross at Calvary. They saw these things. Maybe you had heard the word and the news that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Maybe you were one of the 500 who saw him at one time. But let's be honest. In light of all that the Hebrew Scriptures have to say about angels, let's look at Jesus' pedigree from their perspective. Yep, Jesus did some great things. Yeah, he fed people. That is 5,000 for a meal. Let's not forget the angels fed 3 million for 40 years. Jesus spoke about freedom and victory. But Jesus never destroyed Israel's enemies like the angel did to Sennacherib's army. Jesus could have saved, but he didn't. John the Baptist. While the angels, they made sure Elijah didn't die and was protected from the prophets of Baal. Jesus wasn't helping them in their time of persecution. But angels, listen, this is very important. Here these Hebrew Christians in the first century are struggling with persecution and they're begging for Jesus to help them out. We're going to learn later on, many of them are losing their lives and their property and they're begging Jesus, intervene, intervene. And they read the story in Daniel and they're reminded, well, angels kept Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego alive amidst persecution. Daniel alive in a lion's den so i got to be honest with you, as an as a, a original audience, I'm sitting there going, yeah, you know, and here's the other thing. Angels come and go as they like. They're stronger and more mighty than we are. Jesus came in, and he was kind of meek and mild, and he had to walk from place to place. And so as we look at the relationship of Jesus and the angels, i got to be honest with you, angels have a whole lot more going on. Do you see what they were doing? Angels, they're they're it. Angels, we worship them. And Jesus, maybe at best, maybe he's like one of the angels. But he was like us. And I know I'm not an angel, but I saw Jesus, or my dad saw Jesus, and he didn't say he was anything great to look at. So when I think about angels, I worship angels. I like Jesus. You see, the problem was, is there was a twofold problem. Number one, they escalated or elevated angels to an improper spot. And number two, they devalued Jesus to a place that's blasphemy. That's what our world does. Maybe we don't use angels. But we take other things and we elevate them to higher places and we take Jesus and say, well, you know, Jesus, he's a good teacher or Jesus is a good model of living, but he isn't the son of God. He isn't deity incarnate. And so we run into the same issue, but can I add, more and more, we are infatuated with angelic things. We decorate our house with them. We watch TV shows about them. But it isn't so much angels, it's demons. It's the devil. I can't tell you how many times I've had to say time out in a Bible study or a conversation with someone where they've attributed two demons or to the devil, an elevation that makes them on equal par with God. Listen, Jesus is omnipotent. Jesus is 
omniscient, and Jesus is everywhere at all times. Can I tell you three things that the devil isn't? He's none of those things. And I hear Christians all the time. They describe the devil. You know how Martin Luther described the devil? He said the devil is a dog on a leash being walked around by God himself. Okay? And so we need to recognize that we fall into the same dilemma, the same error, because we start elevating things. And so what are we to do about it? The writer of Hebrews is going to say, okay, you need to know about angels. That's why he brings it up. This is the largest passage of Scripture, especially in the New Testament, regarding the work and the status of angels. And so we've got to stop, and we've got to revisit a biblical profile of angels. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, because I could spend weeks doing a series on angels, and maybe we'll do that at some point. But we need to understand some things about angels before we can then go, because once we see how good angels are, you're going to see how much better Jesus is. So here's what we need to know about angels. Instead of allowing our imagination to get the best of us, angels, in fact, do exist. Every Christian would affirm and believe that. But what's their role? What is the place that they have? Let's know a couple things about them. Write these things down. Number one, they're immortal. Immortal does not mean eternal. Immortal means that once they're alive, they don't die. So somewhere, we don't know when, we don't know how, we don't know where angels had their beginning, but they had their beginning sometime in eternity past. Now we know that they were here when creation was began or created because Job 38 verses 4 through 7 says that angels were present and were singing praises to God as he brought the world into form. And so as he's creating all that is seen and unseen, the angels are sitting going, yay, God, yay, God, this is awesome. You are an incredible creator. We know that the fall of heaven that involved a third of the angels following Lucifer, that is the devil, in the rebellion from God happened before creation as well because the Bible says that the devil was in the Garden of Eden and that this had all taken place before men and women were created. Another thing we need to know about angels, they're innumerable. That is, they can't be counted. They can't be numbered. Daniel 7, verses 9 through 10 says this in describing angels, that there were thousands upon thousands, ten thousands upon ten thousands. That is biblical terminology for more than you can count. Just keep adding zeros, okay? Another way that the Old Testament speaks about it, myriads upon myriads of angels. They're all over the place. They're in this place. We can't see them, but there is no doubt. I am of full confidence that we are entertaining angels unaware. Some of that should freak some of you out. Because that means when you're by yourself, they're angels. It's going to change what you watch. It's going to change the way you talk. It's going to change what you do, right? They're angels all about the universe. They're impressive creatures, that is, everything we hear about them, they're all of great strength and ability. There doesn't seem to be puny angels and stronger angels. What there seems to be is different classes of angels. Some angels are, are of higher class. We are told of the devil before he uh, had fallen and rebelled against God. He was the chief cherub 
the number one of all the angels. We know that Gabriel and Michael are the archangels. These are special classes of angels. And then we have ministering angels that we'll talk about here in a moment. They're influential. They're influential. Now, we've seen this as we've addressed the many places where angels are on mission for God in the Old Testament. But let's write down, there's three things that they do, okay? Number one, they worship. They worship. We see this in Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah is given a heavenly vision and he's entering into the throne room of God and he sees angels. That's one of the first things he sees. He sees angels flying about. And he hears angels singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And they're singing this as they're volleying these praises back and forth to one another. Of course, this is where we get the picture of angels being a part of a choir. When Jesus is announced in Bethlehem, an angelic choir appears. That's why uh, things like angels we have heard on high, hark the herald, angels sing. They are worshipers of God. Number two, they wage war. We see over and over again when there's a battle ensuing, whether in real life, flesh and blood, or in the spiritual realm, we see battles going on. The Apostle Paul says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood. So what do we wrestle against? The spiritual principalities that are all about us. There's an invisible war that's taking place around us. It's manifested in what we see and hear. But there's a war going on of angels and demons all about us. Second Kings 19.35 reminds us that it takes one angel to destroy almost 200,000 armed men. They're powerful creatures. Finally, they bear witness. So they worship God, they wage war, they bear witness. What do they bear witness of? Over and over again, we see angels sharing messages. They share messages from God to humanity. Most clearly we see this in our study of the Christmas events in Luke chapter 1 and 2, where angels are uh, dispersed to go and share a message. This is what God is doing. And so they do all of these things. They proclaim things. So can you understand now why in the world these first century Christians thought so highly of angels. Hopefully in these two first two points, you've now got this understanding of now I understand why in this argument about Jesus being the greatest, the author has to stop and say, but wait a minute, Jesus is more superior to the angels, and then for the next 10 verses says why. So let's get to those 10 verses. Because once we've done all of this study of angels, what we inevitably have to do is recognize the place, recognize the place of supremacy that Jesus has over the angels. That's the third point. So we've, we've recognized or we've uh, uh, dealt with the air. We've remembered the air that's come. Then we've revisited a biblical profile of angels. Now we recognize the place of supremacy that Jesus has over the angels. All that I've said is a backdrop to this text. The writer says to the group of people that I want you to know angels are not the end all. And so what is he going to do with this argument? Knowing he's talking to a group of people that think the angels are everything, who think the Old Testament is everything, notice in the text he uses seven Old Testament passages to prove his point that Jesus is better. 
What the writer of Hebrews is going to relay to these people is, a lot of the things you ascribe to angels was the work of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. See, you don't get it, Hebrews. Some of the things that you read and ascribe to this group of angels It was Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, who put on flesh and made his dwelling among us. He was doing those things. For you that don't understand what I'm talking about, when you see the phrase, an angel of the Lord, theologians believe that is an appearance of Jesus Christ himself. So who was in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Jesus. Who was the angel that destroyed the Assyrian army? Jesus. Who dispenses the angels to go where they will? Jesus. Notice what the text says. He makes his angels, winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. Who's the boss? Jesus is the boss. So why is he the boss? Let's recognize three things and I'll close our time. Number one, his name is more excellent. Why? Because he alone is called son. He's called son. Notice verse four. Uh, his name is more excellent than theirs, that is angels. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you, or again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his minister a flame of fire. Stop there. If you do anything in your Bible, what you need to write is what the author is talking about is the superior relationship Jesus had with God over the angels. Uh, Think of it this way, dads. When you say, there's my son, there's my child, there's a special relationship there. There's a lot of kids in this place, but I'll tell you, there are three in this place that have a special place in my heart. Their names are Noah, Joshua, and Luke. They're special to me. Why? Because they have a special relationship with me. They dwell with me. They know my business. They know the most intimate details of my life. Why? Because they're my sons. They are going to inherit the little amount of money that I have. Okay? Because I'm going to spend it all on myself and my wife. Okay? There's a relationship there. And right away, the author says, none of the angels have this. Only Jesus has this kind of relationship. Now, you need to understand a couple things. First of all, there is a communication between father and son that no angel has. There's a place, listen to me, while the angels dwell in holiness in heaven, I'm telling you, not all that God has has been revealed to the angels. So there's a place where the Trinity goes and they communicate to one another because if angels knew everything that God was communicating, they themselves would be God and they're not. They do not know all things. The Son does. And he has this incredible relationship. Now there's a couple of things that right away we've got to be careful with. So he says, of to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Right away you're going to get a knock at the door. And these people, are nicely dressed people, are going to come and say, your church has been deceiving you all this time. We're from the Jehovah's Witness. 
okay? And right away, most of you scaredy cats like, I don't want to talk to you. You Shut the door and be done, okay? People that I really love, they say, come on and let's talk about this, okay? Here's why. Because what they would say is Jesus isn't God. Jesus was the first created being. So right before the angels, Jesus got created. That's from the pit and smells like smoke. So what do we do with this begotten? This begotten is a word that doesn't mean he was created, but that he was given. So where was he given? The son was given to us in Bethlehem. Now we see the connection. Notice what it says in the, in the scriptures. And when he brings the firstborn into the world, let all God's angels worship him. Go back to Luke 1 and 2, right? At the countryside of Bethlehem. And Jesus is ushered into, in human flesh, into the world. And what do angels do? They sing. They worship him. They're like, oh my goodness. He's leaving his throne and becoming one of them. We'll talk about that in a moment. They worship him. Now notice another thing that comes into this relationship. And that is 2 Samuel verse 7. If you need to, each of these quotations are footnoted in your Bible. So if you've got uh, in your Bible, you have little numbers or letters, look down at the bottom of the page and they will say the references of each of them. One of the references is 2 Samuel 7. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. This speaks of function, not being. I will be to him a father. Notice he's not a father like I am a father, I am a father to my sons, okay? What it is, is this is how the three triune nature of God, persons of God, are one. So how does that flesh itself out? They play parts, functions of one another. The father has a function that the son doesn't. The son has a function that the father doesn't. And they are, the best way to explain them is like a father to a son in function. That does not change their being. They are one. They're one. Notice finally, he quotes Deuteronomy 32, 43. Nails it all to the wall. He says this in verse 6. Because Jesus is the son, because he's the creator, because he's the stainer, because he's the heir of all things, there is one response for the angels. And what is that? Worship. They are to worship him. And if angels' only response is to worship Jesus, then let me ask you, brothers and sisters, what do you think our response should be? Worship. Worship. Notice the second thing. His place is elevated above all. He sits on a throne. So if verses uh, 4 through 7 are about relationship, what what are the verses 8 through 13 about? Write this down. Royalty. All throughout the verses, it's royalty through and through. He gives imagery of what's going on. A couple things I want you to see. Three times in those verses, in fact, from verses 3 to verses 14, we see the word that Jesus is seated. He sits on a throne or some derivative of that. What we need to recognize is that's there for a reason. Now, in the Hebrews' days, kings were active, It was very rare that you ever saw a king on his throne. Why? Because a king usually went out with his armies to fight battles. That's one of the very significant things that we see the night that 
uh, King David lusts upon Bathsheba. He shouldn't have been in his palace. He should have been out in the battle. Because kings went out with their armies. The only time a king was seated on his throne and now out at battle is if all the enemies were vanquished. Jesus is forever seated on his throne. What does that tell us about his enemies? They're defeated. They're defeated. Another reason why uh, a, a king can't sit is he's got problems with his subjects. There's problems in this district. There's problems in this province. And so the king has to go and he has to address his subjects and deal with those things because the kingdom isn't in control. There's a problem there. Well, notice the king is seated and he rules and reigns with uprightness and righteousness. He hates wickedness. And so why can he remain seated? Because listen to me very carefully. The reason why the writer of Hebrews says three times in this text that Jesus is seated is because his enemies are vanquished. And listen to me, brothers and sisters, his kingdom is under control. So in our world of uncontrolled chaos that we live in, we worship the greatest of all time who's got this kingdom under control. Now it goes even farther, and it says there's a, day's, a day coming when the Father is going to make Jesus' enemies a footstool. This is huge. We read right by that, and like, oh, that sounds nice. In the time of the Hebrews, the practice of kings when they had decimated an army was to bring the highest generals that were from the enemy territory, bring them chained up, and bring them to the king, the, the, victor, the victor king. And the king would sit on his throne. You know what he would do? He would raise up his feet. And they would push down the generals on all fours. And the king would put his feet on their backs. Talk about humiliation. Talk about, talk about sticking their nose in defeat. You know what we hear in the book of Revelation? And the devil who's chained with a great chain is brought into the presence of God and God makes the devil and every one of his enemies a footstool. This is the God. This is the Jesus whom we serve. You think that the angels can compete against that? I don't think so. Jesus is the boss. Finally, one more thing. His ministry is more extensive. So in verse 14, we see, yeah, these angels, they, aren't they ministering serve, uh, spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation? Yep, they do that. This is where we get the idea of guardian angels, okay? And so I'll be asked from time to time, do you believe in guardian angels? Yeah, I believe in guardian angels. I believe in ministering angels. I can't tell you how many times I've almost thrown myself into oncoming traffic in my car, why? Because I'm looking at my radio or grabbing a text from one of you people. Don't text and drive. Okay? All of those things. And right away, at just the right time, somehow, I was able to not only get my focus back, but to turn at just the right time, not to hurl myself into that oncoming car or into a tree, but right where I need to be. You, know, you could say, Tim, you're Mario Andretti. I'm going to say it's probably an angel. How many times have we done stupid things, men, where we've put ourselves on the top rung of a ladder, stretching out to paint that one corner, only to fall 20 feet to our demise and not die. Your wife says, that's stupid. You're just proving that there's angels out there. All right? There are angels, and angels are all about us, and they are here 
to serve, but listen to me. Angels can only serve, but Jesus is the only one who saves. He's the one who gives us salvation. Did you know that angels look into our salvation? The Bible says that they look into these things. They inquire intently, the book of 1 Peter says, about redemption. They don't get it. It makes no sense to them, and here's why. When the angels rebelled against God, God threw them to hell. One and done. That's my kind of parenting, one and done, okay? And so then God creates this creature a little lower than the angels. We are made a little lower than the angels. We're not as strong. We're not as powerful. We're not as magnificent as angels are in so many ways. They are magnificent creatures. And so God places us in this garden. We're this fragile, little puny man. And he puts us in this garden and he walks and talks to them. Angels like, yeah, we've been there, done that. We walked and talked with God. But then Adam and Eve did the very thing that angels did. They rebelled against God. And they just said, got it. (laughs) Watch this. They're going to hell. Done. That's what happened to our brothers, the third of them that fell. They're in gloomy dungeons now awaiting the judgment. That's what's going to happen to Adam and Eve. And and as they're walking around, yeah, see angel, he's walking them out. (laughs) They're done. They wait till they see what's coming their way. And he brings them out. And you know what he says? But wait a minute, there's going to be an offspring that's going to come. And that offspring is going to reconcile these people. Wait, 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 time out, Jesus. Time out. You're going to do what? You're going to give them a second chance? Wait a minute, that doesn't compute. And then Jesus knocks their socks off. At some point, we say it's December 25th, 0, 0, 0, 0. We don't know when it was, but Jesus got off, off his throne. And he says, I'm going down. I'm going to become one of them. You're going to What? You're going to put on flesh and make your dwelling among us? Yep, and I'm going to go, and they're going to beat me, and they're going to abuse me, and they're going to rebel against me, and they're going to do everything. They're going to curse my name. They're going to say I'm the son of the devil. They're going to do all of these things, and they're going to put me on a cross. And when they put me on the cross, the devil's going to think I've been defeated, and they're going to think they've gotten rid of me. But in that glorious one miraculous moment, I'm going to redeem those puny humans back to myself. And Yeah. And the angels look at that, and they're like, why don't these people get more amped up for Christmas and Easter? These are amazing holidays that we celebrate, not Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny, but the God of the universe who made a way where there was no way. And so that is why Jesus is better than all of this. He's better than the angels, So what do we do? Real quick application. You ready? Write this down. One takeaway. This is what I hope marks your week. Number one, don't lift up angels. Instead, follow their lead by making much of Jesus and ministering to other believers. Don't lift up angels. Don't put them where they don't need to go, but follow their lead. They're they're examples to follow. Make much of Jesus. Angels love praising Jesus. Do you? Is that a part of your daily life is worshiping Jesus? They love to serve. Do you? Do you love to serve, to be put on mission by God? This is what we should follow in angels. And all the while, as we minister to others and we model out what angels have done, we make much of Jesus because Jesus, as the author says, is greater than the angels. Amen?